Welcome back to Surprise Mechanics, the only podcast about video games. I'm your co-host, Roman Butel, and joining me, as always, is Michael Jones. Greetings, gamer. I see you. Well, greetings, gamer. I see you. Got a pretty fun episode today. Uh, We are joined by the one and only Jim Davis, creator of Garfield. Hi, Jim. Hi. Hello. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Do you want to tell everyone about you? Yeah. uh, I'm Jim Davis. I wrote Garfield. Uh, (laughs) I used to study philosophy. I now study education. Uh, and now I do uh, some video game work uh, as a esports administrator type person. That's that's me. This is going to be our most highbrow one yet. I'm so <laughs> excited for this. But before we get into that, we have a purge update, folks. Mike, a you and I date. saw a purge date. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. You and I saw the new Purge movie. Jim was busy. And this one's called The Forever Purge. And uh, we're still in the theater. It it is forever. We're still here. Uh, We're getting a lot of angry looks from the ushers, but I bought the (laughs) ticket, which means I own the seat, I'm pretty sure. And so, look, the thing about me is I'm a Purge defender. I like this deeply flawed franchise. Roman, are you a Purge head? I'm a Purger. I'm what you'd call a Purger. And uh, there's something in every Purge movie I enjoy. And I've seen, I haven't seen the second season of the TV show, but I've even watched the TV show. And this movie was really, really bad. Yeah, it was kind of lame. It was kind of lame. It was... Like, I'm disappointed. And you might be listening and going, well, how could you be disappointed? It's the purge. But that's the thing. I'm very easy to please. I'm 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 a dumb guy and I like the purge. So really, I don't need a lot. But um, so I think the most disappointing thing was the thing about the purge movies is they always do like they have a social commentary, of course. And it's never like that deep of an insight. Right. And, and it's still like a major blockbuster movie. So they're not trying to alienate anyone. I have no idea what this movie wanted to say. I have. It, it's the most centrist movie I've ever seen, including every single entry in the MCU. I, I was about to say, what, what is a what is a rundown of the premise of this one? Because I know the first one was like a uh, you know family gets kidnapped and there's this highbrow sci-fi stuff going on outside, uh, right. and then the the series has snowballed from there. But like, what what is the Forever Purge? Okay, so to, I'll keep this real quick. We have to take just a step back briefly to the third Purge movie, which is called Election Year. And that movie was all about um, basically voting blue no matter who. <laughs> so the big triumph of the election year was they voted out the purge. The main one of the main characters is this uh, uh, a senator running for president. And if she wins, she is promising to end the purge. So uh, she wins and the purge is over. Then we did it. Yes. And so the movie that came after that was a prequel. So this is the this is the fifth entry in the purge franchise. And this is like, so we're picking up in the present from election year. They undo all of that in the opening. <laughs> like, well, I mean, that's kind of a, of a delightful statement about how ineffective voting actually well, kind right. of is. It could be if they were interested <laughs> in doing that. But they, so the opening montage of the movie, there's just VO that's like, oh, fuck, the NFFA is back. Shit. And 
but but the thing is, the premise of this movie is basically the purge cannot be contained anymore. And so uh, radicals have decided they're never going to not be purging. And so, like, the movie does an interesting fake out at the end of the first act where the purge comes and goes and, like, no one is harmed. Because then it's like the next morning when you see the cleaning crews going out and cleaning up, which in any other purge movie, that's the end of the movie. This one is right. you know, beginning of second act. And then the, the purgers start forever purging. But they could have oh. just forever purged with that woman in office. <laughs> they didn't right. need, like, like that would have actually maybe even been more of a statement. Like it doesn't actually matter what is written into law. Now we're just going to keep purging. Yeah. I, so they're all like doing tax evasion and stuff is why nobody dies at the end of the first act. Uh, they all just hunker down for the purge. That is actually though, you're saying it jokingly, but like white collar crime is a thing I would absolutely love to see in the purge. And we never do never is never seen. Um, but all, what's baffling is the purgers in this movie, Mike, I'll let you talk a little bit more on this, but their agenda is just like all over the place. Yeah, it is. It, it's like pretty cut and dry. Um, like they, they, they want to like have the villains be very fascist, but then, um, like there, there isn't really a, like a, a villainous character that shows up until the like latter half of the film. So it, it's really tough to figure out which of these characters that you start out with are going to be like your good guys and your bad guys and gals. Right. Um, and to that end, I felt that, um, some of the characters they introduced at the start of the film we're going to be our villains and they right. turned out not to be that. And it was kind of strange because the movie sets up this whole like uh, issue between um, a ranch owner and his ranch hands who are immigrants. And there's like a, there, there's kind of like a little bit of a inkling of commentary with immigration and the whole forever purge being purifying the country and, and shit like that, which is, um, not, not right. Um, pretty, pretty cringe. <laughs> but, um, the, uh, the, the character that you feel like is about to become a villain in the, in the course of the purge, um, does not become a villain and is instead kind of like glorified for having segregationist views, which yeah. is, very weird and also cringe um so it's it's again like you said it's like the perfect centrist uh centrist film for this type of material and at the very end like you don't really get a conclusion on whether or not the character changed like truly changed from their viewpoint of oh we should just leave each other alone why why are you know what why are we trying to mingle together um and it, it just kind of like it, it all really is very like bland. Right. And so the the forever purgers are implied to be a monolith. Like it is like an organized movement of like this specific like militia that is is not going to stop. And the first people you meet in this militia are um they're essentially like left leaning. <laughs> like they're like, <laughs> let's kill the rich people. Like that's how it, they start. But then the same later in the movie, the same militia also is shown to be like extremely racist and targeting people because they are like of color and specifically because they're Mexican in the case of our protagonists. Oh, and so dear, it's the just post like left Antifa. Yeah. <laughs> so and it's, and it's just like, okay, so like everyone is like any sort of person who's like speaking out is bad in the text of this movie. They're all the same. Uh, and then in like near the finale of the movie, uh, the army rolls in and keep in mind, the army is the NFFA, which is the fascist 
uh, government that started the purge. And they at one point like save our heroes. <laughs> so it's like, no, we can trust the government again now. Actually, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really all over the place. There's no message. There's no real like through line that you're supposed to take away from it. It, it I think this movie definitely is more of a like just a, a, a dumb uh, action flick that isn't doesn't even really have that good action in it. Yeah, that's another part, too. Like, that, like, or, like yeah, or like any like meaningful or solid horror aspects to it. It's just kind of like all of the the OK or mediocre things about action and horror wrapped up into a movie and then nothing else about it about those genres that are good in the film at all. Right. And then to top it off, there's no <laughs> political or social commentary that's meaningful. It's just like, let's just gloss over everything and it'll all work out. Okay, cool. Here, here's a movie. It means nothing. Right. It should be slightly fair to the purge creators. I am right now struggling to come up with any action horror hybrids in the movies that actually live up to the expectations of both genres. Like that's a can of worms, I know. Right. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since Aliens came out in theaters. (laughs) Right. That is okay. True. I mean, since James Cameron in the '90s, I feel like we've really struggled to hit both marks on action and horror. Right. And and the thing about the Purge, too, I will say again, coming from the uh, position of someone who likes this franchise, it never lives up to its own world building. the The world building in the Purge is cooler than most of the actual Purge things. And uh, I, I want to touch briefly on a point you made, Mike, about the uh, how the main character, our, our protagonist, is a segregationist. That's not hyperbole. <laughs> There's a scene <laughs> where he is telling the the co-male lead, who is a Mexican man, basically saying, like, I don't think white people are any better than you. I don't think I'm better than you. I think we just need to leave each other the heck alone. <laughs> and it's like, OK, OK, man. And the movie is so um obtuse in so many ways and so like uh they intentionally don't leave any subtext so there's never a moment where the main character grapples with that there's a brief moment at the end of the movie where he literally speaks spanish and it's only significant because earlier in the movie he made a comment about he didn't know if he wanted his unborn daughter speaking spanish so i think we're meant to assume in that moment that's like his minor redemption but that is not good enough folks yeah <laughs> like yeah, this it, dude it is, sucks it, it's it's really funny how the be- like the introduction of this character in the film begins with him like very clearly uh being adamant against uh any of his kids speaking a second language uh and and then it goes from that to we should just leave each other alone to uh mucho gracias and yeah. like okay is that that's your character arc that's it's your character arc he, he asks where the bathroom in, is in in five seconds so um it's yeah it's totally meaningless all the way through and then at that it doesn't even deliver um any any sort of like meaningful entertainment through action or horror it's just kind of like i don't know i i I feel like i was like half awake for roughly an hour and a half and (laughs) stuff on screen happened but by now it's it's only been like two days it's all blurred together already can we wrap this up by me sharing my favorite part of the movie? Absolutely. So we saw this with our friend Jacob and right. uh, <laughs> there's a part where a, 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 a man, he's like a tribe leader for uh, the uh, first nations peoples and this movie. And he, he's 
it's kind of teased throughout the movie as like a media talking head. And then he shows up in the finale to help smuggle our protagonist into Mexico to get escape the purge. And, uh, our, our white protagonist tells him, uh, why are you helping us? This isn't your fight. And this man turns to him and says, we've been fighting this fight for 500 years. And right in that moment, Jake just leaned over to me and went cracker. (laughs) 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 That was my favorite part of the movie. Ouch. (laughs) That guy was actually cool though. He deserves better than a purge movie. Yeah. Like if they get somebody in a purge movie, ending up with a, you know, solidarity forever. Right. uh, Glory to the working class or whatever. Like that's a good thing. Uh, but woo, what a, what a journey to get there, huh? It is interesting how this movie, like there's, there's, there's that talk about like, oh, we're, we're going to, we're going to purge the rich and take what's ours. Like there, there is a character that like has a, a moment of like, we're going to, we're going to, you know, punch up. That's upwards. how we're introduced to the villains. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, and, and through that, um, you, you kind of expect like, okay, maybe there's like something there. Well, no, there, it's not. It's literally just, we're going to, uh, tie up the, the ranch owners and then yell at them for a few minutes before <laughs> the, the Mexican protagonists come and save us, which they do. And then at that point, everyone's like, well, they saved our lives. So they, they saved our lives. But, um, then you cut to, you know, the rest of the country and there's, like there, there's little bits of action littered throughout of just general <laughs> purge happening and it's all just people in the street. It's just like regular working class people. So yeah, like you I, never, there, there's never like any other shot besides those ranch owners um, where like, we're going to do in the rich. Well, no, you just kind of took out this person out of bodega. So right. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I hear those uh, that busload of Antifa super soldiers is still headed towards Chicago as we speak. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they stalled out <laughs> on the I eighty. <laughs> They've been hanging out in Wisconsin for the last few months, but they're almost out of uh, uh, you know out of days at the hotel. Yeah. Oh, and and to a point you made, Jim, about like solidarity in the Purge movies, that is a thing. Like it's a relatively low hanging fruit in this franchise, but it's one they've always plucked with ease. And even if you, you know, we want to argue it's like toothless and ultimately doesn't mean anything. It, the purge movies follow a very simple formula. And part of that formula is you don't have your main character be just the worst human. And this (laughs) movie couldn't even do that. Like, it's just really bizarre, really, really bizarre overall. And I, I'm, I really am bummed out because, uh, I was hoping it would at least be fun. And I can't even say it was fun. I had fun seeing it with my friends, but the movie was not that fun. Was this your first return to the uh, the movie theater proper since uh, the global pandemic uh, took us? It is not mine, but I believe it was Mike and Jacobs. It was mine, yes. What a glorious return! <laughs> <laughs> the uh, before the Forever Purge, the the previous movie I had seen in theaters um, and long running champion was Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> Really good movie, last movie to ever see in the theaters, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm actually pretty pleased with that. Maybe we can just actually retcon it where that is the last movie you ever saw in theaters. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to purge the forever purge. <laughs> <laughs> As Roman, what was the last movie you saw in theaters before the global pandemic? Uh, I saw Invisible Man. Okay. Shortly after Sonic the Hedgehog. I got in right under the wire. Yeah. You messed up. You could have had Sonic as, yeah, as your number one. Invisible Man was a good one to see in theaters, though. 
Yeah. My first movie back was uh, Quiet Place 2. Ooh. Which was uh, even quieter. It was even quieter. Can you even believe it? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't hear a thing they were saying. It was nuts. <laughs> that was a fun movie to see. I, I, it felt like mostly going back to like a theme park. Like I, I think I did like the movie well enough, but just being back in the movie theater was doing really good things for my brain. Mm-hmm. I kept asking if they could just replay Sonic the Hedgehog, but they said no. Yeah, I bet that. <laughs> I mean, it's on a hard drive. It should we be don't hard. have. We have to send it back. No, come on. Right. I, I have it. I'm pulling out a thumbstick. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I believe my last movie was Jumanji Two, and that was. <laughs> <laughs> and that that was only because the projector broke. Uh, that was only because for, you loved the first one so much. Well, yeah. Well, we. I was going to go see Uncut Gems. Oh. <laughs> Although, wait, am I a year out of date? Was that actually 2019? Yeah, that would have... Maybe that's why they didn't show you Uncut Gems. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> a whole year... I, the Just last gone. two years maybe has uh, gone by. You know, for the sake of the story, though, let's say that's accurate just because I like yeah. the idea of you can't see uncut gems. So you just do a very easy pivot to Jumanji, too. Yeah, they're basically the same movie. Right. Honestly, they're kind of doing the same thing for your brain, for sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> one's got The Rock doing a Danny DeVito impression and um, the other is about some kids who go to a video game. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> how was uh, how was Jumanji 2 in theaters? Oh, um, it uh, they kept it fresh. And once again, it had The Rock doing a Danny DeVito impression. So how, right. how bad could it really be? That yeah. you, you make a compelling point. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt either of you have seen this, but have you seen like The Rock teasing like Black Adam, the new DC movie he's in? I've seen some promotional photographs that he has put on Twitter.com or Instagram or something. Yes. But uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that movie because as like of someone who follows comic books, I don't know if I'm just kind of misunderstanding what Black Adam's role is in the universe or if uh, Dwayne Johnson was really adamant he would not be a villain because he keeps posting things about how he's like the people's Black Adam. And I'm like, sure, man. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, he's just doing his wrestling bit, right? Because he's always <laughs> been the, pe- the people's champion. <laughs> well, isn't he one of those guys, too? And, and I, I don't say this with like any malice. Like, I think uh, as like a movie star, like protecting your brand is kind of like the number one thing you need to do. But isn't he one of those guys that like has like in his contract, like I can only get hit certain amount of times. I mean, that was definitely a big thing on the Fast and Furious set, right? Where yeah, Vin and The yeah. Rock both had to be protected. So like <laughs> anytime a big move had to be done on one person, it was done on the other and nobody right. ever lost. <laughs> it was like the, the 90s era WCW, but on the big screen, just right. simply delightful. Right. So, and, and, and I was thinking about that as well, because I've also noticed in the promotional materials for black adam uh dwayne johnson is is like basically saying and i will kick superman's ass watch me and i'm like okay that make that's probably part of his thing too is like i need to be able to kick superman's ass and uh, you know good for him honestly that's yeah, that's awesome yeah. i mean if the rock is gonna pivot to superhero movies he may as well kick superman's just ass. give superman a wedge and shove him in a locker <laughs> okay well uh uh do you guys want to talk about movies some more? Or you want to talk about video games? Uh, we could. Do you want to light, lightly talk about video games and then densely talk about video games? Does that sound like a? Yeah. So should should we just maybe we're twenty minutes in? Maybe we should tell people what we're doing here today, and then I'll hand over the reins. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. 
And then I'll let you, I, 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 is that what you meant by lightly talk about video games? Well, by lightly talk about video games, I would just mean like, what, what have we been playing lately? But Oh, uh, yeah, but we could do that for a minute here, too. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to play cyberpunk a lot. And I say a lot, meaning like I'm I'm like it's taking a lot of effort to make myself play cyberpunk. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. And I can't do it. I can't play it anymore. So I think I might just be done playing cyberpunk <laughs> yeah. for real. I was I was going to play this morning because uh, sometimes mm-hmm. I like to do this thing. Sometimes I like to be a little bad in the mornings and I, I, I get up and I play video games for work, you know. Yeah. And uh, I was going to play cyberpunk this morning and I said no. And I played Dead by Daylight instead. Sounds like a better use of time. Yeah, it was fun. It, I mean, I, I think it is partial. My attention span is doo-doo now because I definitely can get like instant gratification. Well, relatively instant gratification once I find a match in Dead by Daylight mm-hmm. compared to the cyberpunk, uh, you know, not not doing anything for my brain for like minutes at a time while I watch a load screen or a cutscene I don't care about in equal measure. Or just like running across the city, like, but kind of slowly because you yeah. don't have any augments that make it go fast. And what an empty city it is. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's not even empty in like the Santa destroy charming way. It's just like there's supposed to be people here, but there, there's yeah. not. <laughs> I mean, I th- some of that may just be graphic settings where like, or are you talking yeah. about like people that you can actually interact with? Because yes. there, there are tons of crowds, but like. Well, there's tons of crowds in specific areas. True. It's just completely devoid of, like, personality. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's very funny. This game was touted as, uh, like, a, a complete game changer for RPG games, especially, um, you know, coming from CD Projekt Red. And um, instead, we got, like, a PlayStation 2 video game. Yeah. I mean, there are some things to be said about that, because, like, that kind of janky, weird mess can be charming. Sure. Uh, and I think that cyberpunk actually did hit the right buttons for a good number of people. I've, I have met three or four hardcore cyberpunk evangelists, but as somebody who has played about 10 hours of it myself, I I just can't bring myself to get back to it. Yeah. That's actually (laughs) where I'm at. I'm at the 10 hour mark. (laughs) And, um, so we're we're probably gonna do an episode on this. So we'll be talking about cyberpunk for like four episodes total. Uh, but one point I wanted to make that I will uh, just say now, I guess, is um, something I keep going back to with this game is I could definitely see myself liking this game if I uh, was like a teenager when it came out, meaning like if I just hadn't played that many open world games uh, or I hadn't, basically if I had never played Far Cry, (laughs) I would have been like, oh, this is like great. This feels awesome. But um, it's kind of the same issue not as glaring though, as I had with that Jedi fallen order game where it's in, in the case of Jedi fallen order, it's not a bad game, but it's just like not better than any of the games. It is clearly pulling inspiration from mm-hmm. and same with cyberpunk. Like I'm just like, it, it's it, I would, I don't even like grand theft auto that much, but I think I'd rather just play grand theft auto or I'd rather just play far cry than this thing. And the thing for me, I think, is that maybe Far Cry Blood Dragon permanently Mm -hmm. ruined that genre of games for me because of how fun and fast it was able to make the like click every like check off every box on this list of things to do in this open world. Right. Because like in in Blood Dragon, you get to fly across the map running at like 60 miles an hour. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you shoot laser guns and instantly kill everything. And then you have a base. Right. Like delightful game. 
I cannot play any other games like it now because <laughs> they are not that satisfying. Yeah. And it ruined Cyberpunk for me. <laughs> <laughs> that and only that ruined Cyberpunk. Watch, watch Blade Runner just throw it in the trash after playing Blood Dragon. <laughs> can't, can't enjoy it any further. No more. Just yeah. need to, no more enjoyment. Um, it's all forced hatred. <laughs> yeah. Mike, what have you been playing? Uh, I recently finished Wolfenstein 2, the new Colossus, and we talked mm-hmm. about that uh, last week, um, though uh, I, I, I hadn't finished it at the time. I tried to, but um, I finally beat the game. I also beat some uh, side missions. This game has side missions in it. It's great. The, um, the, the final act of Wolfenstein 2 was a blast, and... Um, this game is a fun shooter, kind of like Doom, but just just like different enough that it, it isn't, you know, just a clear cut copy of Doom's gameplay. Um, and I think, again, where this game really shines is its narrative and its characters. The The main cast of characters is really charming. And I, I've always enjoyed uh, jumping into a cutscene during the course of this game because I just liked seeing those characters a whole lot. So to uh, spoilers, to, to see um, those characters start a global revolution against the Nazi Reich on live television for what would be the in-universe Johnny Carson show was <laughs> was absolutely amazing. Absolutely wonderful. Um, what a good game. Um, very fun. Very good. Uh, would recommend it to friends. Uh, besides that, I've been replaying. I replayed uh, Metal Gear Solid Three again, um, and that game is always just always a blast. Always love that game. Um, it's uh, such a a good time, and I think one of these days, Roman, you'll have to play it because I don't think you've played that game before. Nope. But it is, it is. Uh, I dare I say, one of the greatest games ever made. At all, ever. Yeah, that game. That game is a treat. Well, you are talking to a platinum trophy holder for Metal Gear Survive. Yes. Well, <laughs> if you if you liked Metal Gear Survive, then let me tell you. Friend. I didn't say that. I did not say that. <laughs> you didn't say you liked it. <laughs> I just said I platinumed it. Yeah. Mo- uh, moderately enjoyed enough to get the platinum trophy. Um, <laughs> no, I, I have, I have a feeling you'll, you'll probably enjoy Metal Gear Solid three. Um, it is, it is a phenomenally good game and, uh, it is definitely one of Hideo Kojima's greatest works, uh, in video gaming. And, um, it, it kind of like, it does a fun spoof of like James Bond spy movie stuff. And, uh, um, there's, there's so much contained within this game like the things that you can do to approach any situation and like little things like uh like leaving tnt in a food storage room in a military base meaning uh and you you blow up their food storage so later when you see soldiers they're all like starving and hungry if you throw (laughs) food at them they'll like drop their gun and go eat it's (laughs) It's incredible the level of detail that they put into that game, and that game exists on the PlayStation Two. Um, just a just a very good time, and I cannot wait to share that with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I always think about all of the details that they threw into the uh, was it the tanker mission in Metal Gear Solid Two? Yes, like, yeah. The, you, the, you start the out, prologue. 
Yeah, you start out sneaking in this uh, in this container ship at the beginning of the game, and it's raining out. And like, if you stay outside too long, Snake will catch a cold, <laughs> and like he'll start sneezing. Yeah, and the sniffles will alert guards nearby. They're like, "What was that noise?" Wow, that's cool. Yeah, just insane stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, what have you been playing? Um, I, I mean. Uh, over what period of time, I guess. Um, yesterday, I reinstalled the Master Chief collection, uh, f- the, all of the Halo games. Mm-hmm. And what it made me quickly realize was that I may not have that much of a desire to go back to the Halo <laughs> games at this point. <laughs> like, when I was in high school, I remember two and three were some of my favorite video games of all time. But, like, looking back at it now... Uh, it, it just may be that the game design, I mean, the game design aged well in some regards, but you know, maybe, maybe I'm just a different person now. Maybe I just like uh, turn-based RPGs too much. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've been thinking about getting that because I did not grow up on Halo. Uh, and I've never really played much of a Halo game. Do you think I would like it? Um, you may. So I think the thing that really intimidated me about the, what they've done with the Master Chief Collection is that I, I think that thing's been out for six, seven years now at this point, and they've tried to turn it in, into a games as a service. Oh. So like your like your, your profile levels up as you play single player campaign stuff and as you play multiplayer, mm-hmm. and you can use that to unlock cosmetics for the multiplayer stuff. Uh, and it it's weird watching all of that stuff get grafted onto a game that didn't need that. Right. Or didn't even initially have it. Right. Yeah. I mean, Halo three had some collectible armor pieces that I believe that you could get through just playing the campaign well enough. Like I believe there was a set of armor that you could get by beating it on legendary. Right. But that's like fun. That's like fun. Right. <laughs> fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this one's like, Play five games this week. Oh, you got an unlock point. You can yeah. spend it on any of these arbitrary things we can let you unlock. And Don't forget <laughs> to complete your daily rituals for the single player offline game. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a hefty multiplayer component to it. Uh, you can just queue up and it'll drop you into the multiplayer of literally any of the five Halo games they've got on there. Which means it's wildly inconsistent. <laughs> oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of neat that, like, oh, you could just jump from game to game with no problems like that. But also, you uh, you never know what exactly you're getting into. Right, but, I mean, you could, like, cho- choose to do that, right? Like, if, if you don't want to get randomly dropped, is there, like, an option to be like, no, I want to play this specific mode in this game? Yeah, yeah. I also don't know what the player base is at this point. Like, I, it was it was populated enough yesterday once again i I think i spent like four four hours max on it yesterday and i went wow this is a lot (laughs) (laughs) that is that's a pretty long time to play really any game like in one sitting that is true it's i'm just trying to it's been a long it's been a long month right (laughs) (laughs) having a day where i can just play video games i guess i decided halo was it yesterday (laughs) awesome yeah, I don't know. I, I keep looking at it, and one of these days I feel like I'm going to get it, but I haven't yet, so... Yeah. We'll see, I guess. It also does... It, it has cross-play now, and it does the thing where it will try to match you by what control type you use, either mouse and keyboard or controller. Mm-hmm. But in the casual games that I played, 
uh, I had a game where one team each had a mouse and keyboard person and both of those people just cleaned up. It right. was not even close. Like I, I basically didn't need to be playing the game because of <laughs> how much better the mouse and keyboard players were than people who had to use the, the thumbsticks. Wow. Rent a gamer, get the keyboard and mouse gamer so that you can just kind of sit back and watch them play. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's been my, my casual video games. Uh, so yeah, we, we can talk about, uh, the, the big topic for this week, which we have, uh, not actually formally introduced yet. I believe no, we haven't. So we're calling this Jim's philosophy hour and yeah. Jim, like you said, in addition to being an esports athlete, you are also a man of wisdom. Uh, supposedly I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Because here's what everyone needs to know. I'm very, very stupid. So I'm going to be leaning on both of you to uh, make me seem smart and good. Sound good? Okay. So yeah, yeah. For, for Mike, it's business as usual. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, what, what you guys bring to the table definitely is a uh, knowledge of video games. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> that's, that's a, uh, a, a valuable commodity in today's economy. Yes. Ever said to me. <laughs> <laughs> that is your your one skill. That's your worst. <laughs> your one skill. I put all of my skill points into video game knowledge. Someone had to. Yeah. So I I wanted to talk today about the about ethic systems in video games. Uh, partly because earlier this summer I did finally play Mass Effect One and Two, and it got me thinking about the ways in which uh, traditional analytic ethics intersects with video game design uh, and the ways that it doesn't. Because uh, I think that we're going to find that, uh, you know, maybe most video games, even if they try to play with big ethical questions, generally either get it wrong or, or just, I don't know. <laughs> I there are a few that I think get it very right, and we'll talk about those later. But like, I just I, I, playing Mass Effect got me thinking about uh, morality choices in video games and how hollow they often seem. Uh, and so, yeah, I just wanted to talk about uh, ethics in video games today. Okay, now we're specifically talking about ethics in video games, not ethics of the people who make video games, right? Oh, of course. Okay. Um, although, that makes it a little easier. Yeah. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> um, although, I mean, the, the, the main thing about playing through Mass Effect was just how much ideology really seeped through from the game makers. And like, I, I think that's just going to come through no matter who's writing it. Like the Mass Effect series has this like post the late Iraq war. I say late. It was only 2009. <laughs> 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 you know, this late Iraq war mentality of like, you know, 24 is in full swing. So we need to make this uh, riveting sci-fi action show about characters making big choices. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's this whole set of video games set uh, made around this era where that is, that shows through so much like the, the 24 influence. Um, I guess if we want to talk about how stupid all of that stuff is, we could talk about uh, one of my favorite stupid uh, philosophical topics, uh, the, the, the trolley problem. <laughs> Cause that is what most video game designers really lean on is, uh, let's see, I'd, yeah, 
intrinsic versus instrumental value. Uh, like, do the big question around trolley problems is: Do you make yourself complicit for some greater gain? You know, in the trolley problem, there's this trolley headed down a train track, and it's about to split into two pieces, uh, uh, to two different tracks. On one track, five people have somehow fallen in; they can't get out. Whatever. There's a wall. Who knows? They're very dumb. I don't know. Uh, and then on the other track, there's one guy. Uh, and then you somehow, uh, even though you're not a union employee, uh, you didn't set this up. You're next to the switch that could change which track the trolley goes down. So the big question is, do you save the five people by switching it and killing the one? Uh, and, you know, I think that this question really seeped into the national consciousness as the United States tried to absolve itself of the Iraq war, Guantanamo Bay, uh, Abu Ghraib, uh, <laughs> Afghanistan, <Just> atrocity <laughs> after atrocity committed South America, <laughs> just in general, just keep going. No, um, so like, I, in the Bush era, we really were going hard on the imperialist project. A great number of Americans supported it, at least vocally in the media. Like the, you know, thing we don't think about too often nowadays is just how big the counter protests the Iraq war were, but also how little they accomplished because nobody in power cared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that just sort of serves as the, uh, foundation for talking about morality systems in video <laughs> games uh, as they relate to sort of blockbuster games in the in the 2000s. Um, you know, I th- from what I know, the first game that actually had a morality system was Ultima 4 in 1985 uh, because the their game designer, Lord British, uh, had gotten some fan mail about the way people had played the first three Ultima games. And it turns out People completed those games by being giant dicks to the world around them. <laughs> like, <laughs> no surprise. They would go around killing NPCs so that they could get free loot. They would go and kill the monarch because he had a lot of EXP on him. You know, grind up all that EXP so you can beat the big boss real easy. You know, right. sure, the world may have been destroyed, but like, you did it. You saved right. the day. <laughs> uh, and then Ultima Ford tried to change that by, uh, you know, instead of saving the day, your goal is to become the ultimate paragon of virtue by living up to like seven or eight moral standards, which is a wild concept for a video game. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the eighties, like at yeah. the time you're just thinking about like, okay, Oh, I, I can run to the toward the right and I can jump. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a top down open world RPG with really rudimentary graphics. I believe it was after the days of ASCII, but like not much, not far removed. <laughs> Uh, and you know, those games are really janky to play nowadays. Uh, right. And I kind of wish that we could get modern reimaginings. Yeah. Cause that, w- that would be interesting to see the jump from three to four considering I know that there's a big, um, a big thing with video games in the path of least resistance is the one that's most commonly taken. So regardless of how your game is presenting like the correct, option or the correct choice to make whether that mm-hmm. is a uh, a linear uh set of uh, choices to make or if it's branching the way that mass effects uh, the mass effect games advertise themselves right um whatever is like the easiest option 
and has the least resistance is going to be the path that the majority of players will likely take because mm-hmm. it's the mm-hmm. easiest option. So mm-hmm. hearing that gamers just absolutely wrecked the world of <laughs> Ultima 3 in order to, you know, min max their way to the end game does not surprise me at all. Um, and it's kind of uh, a valiant effort to, to find a way to change that. Mm-hmm. Well, especially because that can be, you know, we talked about this a lot in, with Last of Us 2. That can, that's such a tightrope when you want to start like finger wagging people for playing the game. You know, there's nothing oh, wrong yeah. with making people kind of think like, oh, there's like, there is a, a consequence for, you know, just killing all these NPCs. Um, but, you know, as was the case with Last of Us 2, when it's like, well, my only option is to kill the NPCs. So, right. Or you could uninstall. Yeah, yeah, right. Or you could stop playing. <laughs> <laughs> the only way to win the game is to not to play the game. Oh, so you're saying I should uh, genocide them? That's what you both think is better? Because if I uninstall, <laughs> what happens to them? Well, that's what uh, that's what Neil Druckmann thinks. That's what, right. that's why that's why you, you only have the option to kill, and you don't have the Metal Gear Solid Three Snake Eater option of tranquilizing or sneaking past. Yeah, you just have to do gratuitous glory kills on all of the dogs and uh, innocent people that you've befriended earlier. Well, that's how you get ammo. So it actually is kind right. of a sweet system. Uh, and it recharges the flamethrower. Do, do you do you want to become an infected? No, like, uh, kill your dog. Joel keeps calling Ellie Doom Guy. God. Doom Guy. Video games are cool. Hey, hey, Joel, what's up, Doom Slayer? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, one of my intentions is to like do a brief overview of like sort of the three major thought lines in like analytical analytical ethics at the moment, and like think about how they might kind of relate to the video games that we play. Which, once again, uh. I, I've already stated, like, most video games have not really lived up to any of this stuff, which is weird because analytical ethics is sort of mostly known for being very systematized. And I think that that could be used really effectively by a game designer, but uh, it hasn't really yet. Um, so, like, the the two big ones that sort of get... Uh, pushed back and forth are utilitarianism and deontology. Uh, utilitarianism uh, or is also called consequentialism. It's the one where like you're like the, uh, the effects of your action matter more than what went into making those actions happen. Uh, it, it was created by Jeremy Bentham who lived from 1748 to 1832. This is your <laughs> educational portion. Of I the, am taking uh, notes. Yeah. There will be a quiz for all listeners at the end of this, by the way, just just so you know, there's a quiz for all listeners. Yeah, uh, he, I, his mummy is on display, I believe. I thought um, you said his mommy. Yeah. <laughs> his mommy was. I'm going to r- make sure that I got this right. It's. Uh, dang it. The. <laughs> Google is really unhelpful about actually giving answers. Okay. So he's at university college. They have his mummified body and head at university (laughs) college, which sounds like a fake name for an institution. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But apparently it is uh, quite a prestigious institution. It's got Jeremy Bentham's (laughs) mummified head from 200 years ago in it. Uh, 
So Bentham's thought was that the purpose of life is to pursue, pursue pleasure and avoid pain. So like, you know, get chicken tenders, don't go to work. Like that's. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and <laughs> for, for this proceed. Uh, I'm helping. Yeah. yeah. Oh, of course. Uh, he sort of came up with this sort of moral math to figure out like what makes certain actions good. And he wanted to, he created a, a unit of currency called utils. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and you know, the more utils something is, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the more pleasure it creates and the less, the less pain it creates. Uh, you know, you can mine utils on the blockchain. Uh, no, I don't well, you can't right now because of the chip shortage. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Uh, topical humor. You have, you have to go the um, the all-natural route, which is probably like going outside and, you know, enjoying a, a, a beautiful summer breeze. Yeah, uh, rotating cubes in your brain. That'll... <laughs> <laughs> Analog sources of util. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And so the utils sort of measure actions by just a variety of stuff. Uh, it sounds like Scientology. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, and the thing Bentham was kind of insane. And the thing is that his uh, his prized pupil, uh, somebody who uh, his prized pupil was John Stuart Mill, who some people may know better than they know Bentham. Maybe, I don't know, like mill is a name that gets bandied around. Uh, he was raised at a young age to be like the perfect philosopher. He was like, his dad made him study like ancient Latin and ancient Greek starting at the age of like six. He was like, the whole purpose of your life is going to be, you're, you're going to be a great philosopher. And as a result, uh, mill went completely bonkers. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think he was, he had to go to a sanitarium at like the age of 20 or something. Oh my gosh. Uh, and I, part of it was also that I think maybe around at some point in his youth, he was assigned to Bentham. It was just like Bentham, Bentham, you, you must train my boy up to be the perfect philosopher. Uh, and he is the one you know, trying to do, trying to do all <laughs> these calculations of like, okay, if I do this, will it create <laughs> more utils? <laughs> Just drove this kid nuts, right? So in Mill, in response, created rule utilitarianism, which is just like, just follow the rules that will create more pleasure than they cause pain. You don't have to think it out every time. You don't <laughs> got to do math. The pleasure rules. Yeah, just follow the pleasure rules. Go to the pleasure dome. <laughs> hey, guys, earlier when I made that joke about the chip shortage, does the, do graphics cards actually have, are they affected by the chip shortage? I don't want to, I don't want to sound stupid. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Good. Okay. 100%. I've just been, okay. Can you go back for about 10 minutes and repeat all that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Jeremy Bentham, uh, 1748 to 18. <laughs> Time loop episode where like the, 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 the 40 minute to 50 minute mark is just constantly repeating for the next yeah. 30 hours. Cause one of us is not listening at any random point. <laughs> oh um, my gosh. And so, yeah, Mill is just like, you know, there are rules that we can follow that will make people happier than if we don't follow them. Right. And then his thing was sort of that the rules that we have to come up with are maybe just kind of what we already have. It's not that complicated. People already live kind of harmoniously, kind of. Uh, 
which is kind of crappy because that sort of just defends the status quo, right? And I believe the status quo in uh, 1806 to 1873 was uh, <laughs> kind of fucked up. I Still don't know. less than ideal. Yeah. Uh, to his credit, he was a, uh, a supporter of women's right to vote. Um, he might have been racist. I don't know. <laughs> With any of these people, honestly, odds are they probably are racist. The guy I'm going to talk like about a, a next fair con, guess. like definitely was. <laughs> uh, so, like, Kant. I guess, yeah, the thing about philosophy <laughs> is that it is mostly inhabited by insane people. <laughs> uh, Immanuel Kant was another one of these insane people. <laughs> Um, massively influential guy, uh, 1724 to 1804. So he was alive or at the same time as Bentham and for some of, oh, not, not any of Mill's life, but, uh, I believe Kant was a, was like a German guy, but in 1784, who knows what the German Republic looks like. I'm probably getting that wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, he believed that philosophical concepts were, uh, re- real things basically like, because we were able to reason out something, that means that it is a real thing. And as a result, uh, there are moral concepts that, concepts that are real and absolute and universally binding. And he, he's the kind of freak who's like, the only way in which it is real is if it is universally binding. And that's basically where his set of ethics come from. He is the deontology guy. Uh, <laughs> He reasoned out the fundamental moral truths of the universe and came up with two. Uh, the first one is that any action that you take should hold up to a maxim that you can make universally applicable and that people should always be treated as an ends to themselves and never merely as the means. So, like, don't make yourself into an exception and, you know, respect the fundamental humanity of yourself and others. Is easy, dingus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly... Not the worst rules. Right. Um, yeah. That one, they, that one's not as crazy. Yeah. It, there are some weird use cases where he's like, one of the, the counterpoints that always gets brought up to deontology is like, uh, Kant is big about never lying because when you lie, you turn yourself into an exception for whatever reason. So like if somebody comes to your door and they're trying to kill somebody that's in your house, you're not supposed to lie to them and say that person's not in my house. <laughs> Because I would be making yourself into an exception. Right. Yeah. Uh, But Kant's like counter argument to that is that like, well, if you lie about it, maybe it becomes true. Like, I don't know. Maybe the guy runs out and you say that he's out. And then the killer like walks around the house and sees the guy in the backyard. Oops. You fucked up by saying that the guy was out. So there's a lot of unintended consequences of all of these systems. Uh, And, you know, that's why they're maybe not actually great for applying to real life. Uh, <laughs> and so, so those are like the two th- like arguments that get pitted against each other a lot in game design with the trolley problem, like as insane as, and abstract as they kind of are like the whole, do you make yourself complicit in order to achieve a greater goal? is like a foundation of video game storytelling because it's big, it's flashy, uh, and things generally blow up when you tell that sort of story. 
it also seems relatively easy as far as like giving someone a binary choice in a video game. I mean, like Telltale, you know, based on what you've said here, that's like what Telltale designed all of their whole shit on. Yeah. It's like, do you make an, do you do an action that feels bad at the moment, but may have greater consequences down the line in a good way? Mm -hmm. Or do you just like follow this principle? Like, no, don't do fucked up shit. Holy. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so it's it's interesting to see the way that that plays itself out over video game design. Uh, when the the example that I always come back to is Bioshock One, where I think that they were kind of moral cowards in creating that because the the only real choice that you have in that video game, and it's famously a game about how you have a lack of choice, which is actually kind of effective game design. Uh, the only choice you have is whether to kill the little girls or save them. And when you kill the little girls, you're supposed to be getting more resource points that you can use to upgrade yourself and become better at fighting the big bad guy. Uh, but if you save the little girls, you get less resources. Uh, but, you know, you're not a, a monster who goes around killing little <laughs> girls. Like, that's supposed to be the reward. Uh, but, like, as far as doing the the quote unquote moral math around it, you get just as many, if not more upgrade materials by saving little girls. So it's unless you just actually want to see the bad ending, there's no universe in which that's an actual choice. And, you know, maybe that's exploiting a player's lack of foreknowledge of like, that is how it's going to play out in order to create that dynamic. Like, how dare you even think that this was a valid moral choice? And maybe that, maybe that's what it is. Uh, but oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And you know, thinking about games that have like these systems in them, I think more often than not, that is the trend. Meaning I, I personally see very little reason to ever go like what would be considered the bad or evil route. Mm-hmm. Because I think, most games don't actually give you a good reason to do that outside of like what you're just saying, being a completionist or wanting to be a sicko in the virtual world and just seeing what happens if you are bad. Uh, I think it's actually easier for me to pull games. I think have done the bad route better than, than not. Yeah. And I mean, like that is another complicated thing where a lot of video games treat goodness and badness as if they are intrinsic things and not, matters of perspective and relationships. And I think the most effective RPGs and games that I've played uh, that have dealt with moral issues tend to treat things more as relationship-based. It's interesting to contrast the Mass Effect sort of Paragon-Renegade dynamic where like Renegade is, you know, I get the job done no matter what, whatever Paragon is. I'm going to do things the right way uh, versus... Uh, its closest competitor at the time, uh, Alpha Protocol, uh, the Obsidian RPG, where there isn't a red-blue bar. There, There's just relationships that you have with individual characters throughout the game. Uh, and there are certain buffs and debuffs that you get from having characters either like you or hate you. And you can act completely differently from character to character. Uh, that game is just wildly cool, actually. <laughs> I think a lot about uh, Fallout 3 when morality systems get brought up because it kind of reminds me of this as well, where it's like it, it's a binary, right? You have uh, you, you either do actions that 
are morally good or morally evil and uh, you have a meter that goes to the left if you're doing bad things or to the right if you're doing good things and you yeah. get like a, a title for your character like you know you were the the savior of the wasteland or you were the absolute scourge of the wasteland mm-hmm. but at the end of the day the only thing that I can remember that affecting the game was uh, it was just a different company of mercenaries hired to kill me just a, <laughs> just a different right. name for NPCs that's it yeah I mean, the, the meter system in games is always really funny. Uh, I, the, the true crime series had a a good cop, bad cop meter, depending on (laughs) if if you took out perpetrators non-lethally, uh, or if you just went on Grand Theft Auto rampages or whatever, Uh, as far as I know, the only consequence of the good cop, bad cop meter is that I think the, the ending changes, but other than that, it's like the same game. I think um, an, another good, ex- like another an, an interesting experiment in more moral systems in video games. I think going back to Metal Gear Solid Three, Snake Eater, is um, it's not immediately told to you, like you as a player, the first time you play this game, it, it's not immediately apparent that you have a lot of options for how to approach the obstacles in front of you. You can run uh, straight into uh, enemy territory and shoot everybody loudly or quietly, or you can knock them out uh, loudly or quietly, or you can just sneak on by. Uh, But near the middle to late point of the game, there is an encounter where uh, the the protagonist of the game uh, essentially has a near-death experience and sees a ghost. And the ghost is kind of i don't i don't think that 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 character is judging you but it does put you on a like river sticks scenario where you have to wade through the waters and um face all of the people that you have killed through the game up until that point um and up until that point there's no indication that that is a mechanic that is a thing (laughs) Uh, yeah. at all until you reach that moment and afterward it there really isn't very much there either but like it's an interesting way to um kind of build a morale system a morality system into the game that in and of itself is a little inconsequential it's kind of just bragging rights if you want <laughs> to you know go through with doing a pacifist non-lethal playthrough even though there are characters that still you know canonically and uh, by the plot have to die but Mm -hmm. um it changes that encounter every time because the the methods that you use are represented there and um i think the amount like the game is tracking every single um enemy npc that you do harm to Mm -hmm. and i think that sets up at least for me that like sets up um whenever i revisit that game I, I play pacifist. I play non-lethally and every metal gear game since then I've, I've taken an approach with wanting to, you know, be as stealthily as I possibly can be. Cause I just don't mm-hmm. want to be seen. Cause I don't want to, I, I don't want to put myself in that situation where I have mm-hmm. to make the moral choice. Um, and then additionally, um, if I do have to make the choice, then it's like, okay, well let's see if I can take the greater challenge of, you know, being the paragon and, and not going through with, um, you know, just being a soldier hired to kill. Mm-hmm. I, I think Kojima games are really good about that in general. 
Death Stranding, I think, is another good example because it's about like it's like a morality system in the sense that you're building structures to help other players around the world who are also playing this game. Mm -hmm. Kojima games do a really good job of asking what it takes to wage a moral war. And like at the end of the day, I think the big answer is like you you can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, depending on how you play it, Snake definitely tries. Um, And I think Metal Gear Solid 5, for all of its numerous flaws, is really cool about the way that it approaches that question that... I mean, they they were asking it throughout the series. You know, 2 has a lot of non-lethal versus lethal questions. But like 5, in terms of the way in which you grow your base, you grow your little zoo, is all about trying to approach these conflicts with kindness instead of, uh, you know, murdering everyone. (laughs) Uh, And it's really neat that they give you those choices. And it feels like they're trying to examine like the, the, the effects that those decisions have on the world around them. Like, and especially like you said that, you know, depending on how you play snake, you know, tries his best to, you know, to, to, to not just be a a murderer. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, a, a lot of a lot of times, there's like, despite trying your best, there's just no other option in in some yeah. scenarios. So um, even in the attempt to try, there's like there's failure and there's nuance uh, mm-hmm. within that. Uh, we had talked about uh, Red Dead Two and the way that they handle some of those questions. Well, earlier you had mentioned how meters and games are silly, and the one I always think about is Red Dead Redemption Two because that feels like a game that has like an objectively right and wrong way to play it uh, based on the, like the narrative you see play out through the cutscenes, uh, And, and I feel like the correct way to play that game would be like, basically be really debaucherous at the beginning. And then mm-hmm. right when Arthur gets his diagnosis and there's like a, you know, it's a very pivotal scene in the narrative where he decides he wants to try to end his life on a good note. That's when you should start being, nice and and humble and not doing crime but also at the same time just the fact that there is like a meter which like tells you how bad a crime is is very funny to me in what right. is supposed to be this like outlaw western game where like like what like why would arthur even care <laughs> like why, why why should i care like if i'm arthur why like i know i'm an outlaw i'm an outlaw by nature so like it, it it kind of seems silly to be a good guy when i am a bad guy and then be a bad guy when arthur's clearly trying to be a good guy yeah I, that's a good amount of ludonarrative dissonance that's like sort of compacted by the fact that the game's controls can be a little wonky so like when you try to tip your hat at somebody, you could just end up shooting them in the face. Yeah. Yeah. I, everyone I know, every single person I know who's played that game has accidentally punched a horse. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just going to happen. I accidentally punched an old woman trying to get on a horse. So yeah. <laughs> what monsters these make of us now? Yeah. Now, I mean, it's, it's just like when you're walking down the sidewalk in real life and you, uh, you want to, you know, walk into that storefront, but you accidentally walk into a window because you thought it was a door. Mm hmm. And just shatter the window. <laughs> You're just trying to make the game feel more realistic by making you do things accidentally. Right. That no. or karma is just trying to even things out. <laughs> I think uh, this discussion sort of leads up to uh, the, the last system of ethics that I wanted to talk about today. And that's uh, virtue ethics, which was uh, made up by... Uh, <laughs> 
an elegant way of putting it. It was created by Aristotle back in the ye old Greek times, uh, who basically said that, you know, virtue is what you do. Uh, really, morality is the things that you do. And so in order to live virtuously, you have to do good things, you have to be good things, and you have to do it with the knowledge of how to keep recreating that good. So it's sort of trying to live up to your highest self uh, and like trying to pursue uh, just good stuff, man. <laughs> uh, and the, the game that like that reminded me of really is actually Disco Elysium of all yeah. things. Uh, because yeah, there, there are a bunch of ways that you can play that game out. But at the end of the day, it's about Harry Dubois uh, trying to become, well, trying to gain redemption in some sense, maybe. Well, and I think too, the, the thing about Disco Elysium, which maybe makes it gel nicely with this is, uh, like Disco Elysium is if, if you choose to be a good person, it's because you have made that choice and you actively make that choice with every decision you make in the game. There there's, you know, the game doesn't make you be a good person. It actually gives you every opportunity to be a bad person if you want. Mm-hmm. You can let your lower, your baser impulses control you if you would like, or, you know, you can live in the ruins of this shattered world with your shattered psyche doing this job that sucks and ha gives you no closure <laughs> and every day is the worst. Uh, but, you know, you want to do right by your friend Kim because Kim's the best. He's the best. Uh, and so you, you, you pick yourself up. You try to conquer your inner demons. You internalize the ethos of communism. Uh, <laughs> and you work to try to create a better world in whatever small way you can, even if it results in absolutely nothing. <laughs> Man, what a good game, huh? Yeah, just phenomenal. Phenomenal just storytelling for this moment in the 21st century. Yeah. It's the game everybody needs right now. Yeah, it's so yeah. good trying to think is is there anything else that we want to talk about uh we could briefly talk about error theory which just says that our conceptions of ethics are like wrong and mistaken um, <laughs> yeah sounds fun <laughs> i mean like i think that basically sums it up and like <laughs> i think that we sort of went over that by just discussing how kind of weird some of these theories are right that they don't quite map with how people actually live their lives well, um, I got I got something we could talk about uh, specifically yeah. related to video games. And, and I could be I want you both to tell me if I'm incorrect here, because I probably am. But one game that I actually think like in the AAA space, uh, one game that I think actually does morality pretty well, while admittedly not being particularly deep, uh, is actually Infamous 2. I think, uh, you know, the, the whole the the conceit of the infamous games is you decide if you want to be a hero or a villain and much like we were discussing earlier in the first game there's really no reason to be a villain it actually just makes the game harder for yourself because people attack you on the street uh mm -hmm. and, and i guess the reason would be you get different power sets but i think infamous 2 does a a better job of making that choice that, that still binary choice uh, um feel a little more fleshed out but i think it mostly does it 
through the like storytelling, which is again, we're, we're talking about a triple A game here. Uh, it, it's not like the most groundbreaking, but it, it's very effective at what it does. And that is it, it pits you against an even bigger bad. So it is like, you know, it, it's a pretty easy built in way to rationalize uh, what you're doing, because even if you're doing mm-hmm. it's the trolley thing, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, have you both played that game? I play the first infamous. I have not. Okay. So I'm going to spoil this like 13 year old game here real quick. Yeah, that's but fine. I think the point that really drives it home at the end is your, uh, so, so throughout the game, it, you actually end up building these like alliances and there's like a team of four of you. There's you, the protagonist, your friend who has no powers. He's just, he was in the first game as well. And then there are two women that get powers in the game. And one is meant to be like, you know, the, the, the bad person, the good person, basically it's, it's very linear and you understand what they're doing. But in that final act of the game, when you make the decision of you're going to go the bad route or the good route, the opposite person actually teams up with you. So if you choose to be the good route, the bad person, quote unquote, teams up with you and vice versa if you do the good route. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's like I said, really nothing groundbreaking, really nothing earth shattering. But I do think that is like an effective way to mask what is a, a you know, one or two decision. It's a little bit more in depth than say like the Far Cry three ending where do I rescue my girlfriend or do I just leave her here to die? Right. And and ultimately it is like the same exact thing. They just like had a, a basically a, a script writer. <laughs> was right. like, All right, I can like make that look a little better. <laughs> right. But, but it's funny to me that they did it so well. And like, even like, you know, infamous's follow-up game was not even as good. Like, like I don't know. It, it seems like maybe that's really the only trick they can do in this, in for, for this uh, thing is, is just try to put some bells and whistles on it through script writing and, they played their hand. That's a, that's a thought that I've had as well with regards to that kind of um, approach to like just like narrative and character development in games when you want to also um, like go through questions of morality or even just provide options for like, do you want to play this way? Do you want to play that way? Um, is that you're kind of you're kind of going to get a little limited the more you stray from a like a, I guess a curated experience a very tightly written script um, mm-hmm. because on, on one end like I, I I think of Mass Effect as like you know you, you you can go Paragon you can go Renegade but at the end of the day you have these branching choices that come back in on themselves at the end of that scenario so um regardless of which direction you choose you don't really get much different game uh you get different dialogue and maybe some different scenes with other characters but um at the end uh you 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 usually always wind up in the same place um so there's really not much to explore there it's it's in no way like a choose your own adventure type thing because Right. That would just be too monumental a task to develop a game where, uh, you know, you play as Commander Shepard and one of your decisions is do we do we go forward and complete the mission or do we go home and, you know, enjoy some martinis and just wait for the end of the universe? Uh, well, we didn't <laughs> animate that second one, so we can't do it. Right. Um, there's a limit there. And, and and so like trying to like build these into a game uh, with it, with those limits, you can't. Um, go outside of the rules of the game itself or the boundaries of the game itself, but you can kind of like uh, create and, and and become the architect for these moral decisions that have either some weight to them because there's a good script writer 
um, or uh, the 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 way that the decisions being presented has some interesting nuance to it that uh, that can affect the gameplay or can affect the story in a meaningful way, or you get like you know the opposite of that where like you know you played this game for 40, 40 hours already and uh, here's the ending but wait A or B real quick just real quick just want to know <laughs> A or B you know um, yeah so um, it, it really boils down to I think there like just developer limitations you can't do a perfect life simulator um and, and i, I kind of feel like that's also where some of the the philosoph- uh, philosophers approach to uh like rules and 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 these sets uh, and systems is that um you're trying to contain a very chaotic thing that is you know life and and you mm-hmm. know and and put it into this box and build <laughs> systems uh that contain it and that um requires thinking of just as many different possible scenarios as possible for a thing to occur. Like again, like going back to someone's trying to murder somebody in your house and you do, you say they are or aren't there. And if you say they aren't there and then they go around back and they're outside, like, Oh yeah, you were correct. You weren't lying, but you know, you didn't know that. So accounting for all those possible scenarios is almost, it's, it's an impossible task to, to try Mm -hmm. to like design a system to contain all Mm -hmm. of that. Um, the, the other day we, when we went to see forever purge, it was actually a joke that I made. We went into a restaurant and there was a, um, the, the entrance to this restaurant is shaped like a V and there is a door to the left and a door to the right. When you walk into the front door and for a very brief moment, the three of us were like, which way do we go? Because there's not a sign. And sometimes places like to have a very strict setup where you walk in, you go through the door to the left, and then people who are exiting come out the door from the right. You know, like the people mm-hmm. setting up rules, setting up systems. And uh, we <laughs> walked through one door, and then I pointed out, oh, hey, if we had gone through the other door, we'd have ended up in the same place. We just made a Mass Effect moral decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, this might be the minority opinion amongst the the gamers, my people. But I almost think I would prefer games that encourage you to make those decisions, but there is no, like, I don't know if you want to call it reward or it's not so much the outcome doesn't matter, but it's, it's not like you're going to try to get a different ending. It's just, you're changing up the gameplay, you know, that you're currently doing like Disco Elysium where, you know, you're still going to get the game, right? Uh, but maybe a better example is I I was thinking again about Darkwood as Michael, you know, I like to do and (laughs) Darkwood is filled with these different options. And and essentially that game, you can do a good run or a bad run, but ultimately it does not affect the ending because you can get the true ending, quote unquote, uh, no matter how you play the game. Mm -hmm. But really just the through line is actually, if you play the good way, you make the game harder for yourself at almost every turn right. because the good way usually boils down to killing an innocent person or stealing from them. And so if you choose not to do that, it makes it harder, which does feel like it has something to say about the, this world that the game is taking place in. But I think I like that a lot. Like, you know, it's, it's almost opposite infamous or even like fable where it's like, well, why would I be bad? And Darkwood, you're kind, you do kind of have to grapple with like, what's the point of being good here? Uh, yeah. But I like that. I don't know. I, I'd much rather just have it affect the gameplay in the moment than some sort of grand 
macro. I see a bunch of cutscenes thing. That's not too dissimilar from the Metal Gear Solid uh, mechanic as well, where you know if, if you if you happen to go for the non-lethal approach, chances are um, that will hinder a lot of the options that you would normally have at your disposal. You know, like. Uh, and, and, and snake eaters specifically, you have a dinky tranquilizer gun. It doesn't have very good range. Uh, so you immediately, if you want to go non-lethal, you have to get close. You have to risk being seen in order to, uh, you know, get within range of whoever your target is so that you can, you know, give them an unexpected nap. And, um, (laughs) Uh, you know, so uh, there are other weapons that have, you know, long range options that are much more powerful and, you know, probably, you know, better for the job. If you're just thinking about everything in terms of being, well, I'm a, a United States soldier, they're a USSR soldier. So obviously, you know, uh, if I want to live, then they have to die. But um, again, it's not that simple in this game. But you do limit yourself. The gameplay does change when you make that choice, even though there isn't like a tutorial pop up that says, hey, now that you've chosen this, this is what happens next. Um, or this is how the game works now. Uh, it is just a it, 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 it's a choice that you have to make with every single encounter in the game, because after you do it once, you have to do it over and over and over again until you finish the game. And so it's very possible that, you know, well, the first five guards didn't really pose an issue. I was able to sneak by them quickly without being seen, or I was able to, uh, you know, knock them unconscious uh, without hurting them and without being seen. So all is well, but I just walked into this room and the way that the guards are, you know, stationed and the way that the room is laid out just makes it so difficult that, you know, screw it. The only way I can get through here is if I, you know, pop a cap at someone's ass. Um, so it's a constantly a decision you have to constantly revisit in order to, mm-hmm. um, you know, continue to examine, you know, what am I going to do next and how am I going to play this game? And, um, that all, I think adds up to what you're saying with, you know, is kind of like a, uh, probably the best way to do that type of thing, which has meaningful impact on the game and doesn't require, you know, the developers to come up with like, an infinite scenario where instead of walking <laughs> forward or walking to the right and jumping, you can also walk left or just leave. Right. Although some games do make, you know, just leaving an option, like sitting around and waiting for 15 minutes at the beginning of Far Cry 4. Game over. Right. You, yeah. you did it. <laughs> and if you out of bounds correctly in Dark Souls, you can kind of do that too, right? Right. <laughs> Just walk past it. <laughs> I, I did that in Resident Evil 4 during the minecart. You just kind of glitch out and then, you know, run past everything. And then you don't have to shoot all those uh, those villagers that jump into your minecart. They're, they're still alive and living happy lives at the end of the game. Exploiting the game is a moral decision. <laughs> <laughs> but I, mean, I guess yeah, th- that conversation really does bring me back to like my pitch for, you know, play Alpha Protocol. That game is kind of amazing. Um you know, it's a it's a spy game uh, in the the mold of the late Iraq War 2008, 2009, <laughs> uh, where you work for a clandestine intelligence agency and like the game is built entirely on stealth missions and relationships with your handlers, with the villains, with uh, people in the government. And depending like it's very 
choose your own adventure in a lot of ways because it's a short enough game where choices can have consequences. Uh, I think the time that I played through it, there was one character who I believe is a romanceable character. I never met them. Wow. Like the route that I chose through the game, there's a swath of content that I did not see. And honestly, that's kind of incredible. Especially like when developers really want to, uh, developers and publishers both probably look at content in their game and think, will everybody see this? And right. um, can we you know, build this in a way that guarantees that everybody sees this because we invested time and money and resources into building it, but to have something that like, okay, you can miss that entirely. You have to play the game again. That's, that is incredible. Yeah. And I mean, obviously Sega didn't like it because I think it got a 79 on Metacritic, which meant that they never made a sequel to it. Right. <laughs> I uh, just went to the Steam page and I see a review uh, recommended by your friend. And it's you, Jim, from March 29th, 2011. And it says <laughs> Mass Effect, but better plus spies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's like the elevator pitch. <laughs> and then there's another review here from a stranger who, for the record, it says you have 45 hours on record. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty... 43.8 at the time you reviewed it. So yeah, you liked this game a lot. Uh, this person spent half hour on it and the review just says sucked big time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of janky compared to modern video game uh, fare. And like, if you play it on Steam, you're going to want to have a controller plugged in oh, because you mouse can't and buy keyboard. It anymore on Steam. You can't buy it on Steam anymore? At the request of the publisher, Alpha Protocol is no longer available for sale on Steam. I'm sitting here. I was sitting here going, how do I, where's the buy button? Oh my God. Okay. Well, I'm going to come over and I'm going to log into my Steam account. And like, <laughs> just bring your computer. It'll be easier. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just do a, a game time fun. Yeah. Of alpha protocol because that game <laughs> is incredible. Like they, their design ethos is like, okay, we want the main character to be one of three different JBs like Jason Bourne, James Bond, or uh, Jack Bauer. But the thing is, is that one of those approaches really just sounds like a Sterling Archer. Before Archer was a show. <laughs> right. So like, you're just a giant dick to everybody. Uh, phenomenal game. Man, that is a bummer. Apparently just uh, Sega. What is it? Sega's publishing rights expired. Oh, weird. So, you know, that was made by Obsidian Games and Obsidian is now owned by Microsoft. And I, I don't know if Sega would ever be willing to release the rights to Microsoft because like, I would love to see a sequel to that. I'm sure Microsoft could just buy Sega if not. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Putting a gun to Sonic's head for Alpha yeah. Protocol. <laughs> Microsoft's classic uh, mascot character, Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> you loved him on the Xbox. Sonic 06 2. That's what the next one's yeah. called. <laughs> Microsoft Sonic has a, a good catchphrase. Gotta go Windows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Use Windows Edge now. <laughs> Mr. Chili Dog. <laughs> Dang, that that is a shame that that's no longer available. Like, I, I know that that game has been in rights hell for the last 10 years. Yeah. That's uh, and I also know that, you know, they went over budget and they didn't complete the game. And there's like one of the, the zones in that game is massively under designed because of budget issues. But as a result, it's actually one of the most interesting zones in the game. Because, like, they don't all involve conflict, uh, uh, combat encounters. Some of it is just, like, have a conversation with somebody. And that conversation is meaningful. That's cool. And 
video games need more of that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, there's just like a lot of run and shoot type stuff. And um, I, I just finding more creative ways to like build a game uh, without just again, like they falling back to the Call of Duty approach. And it's the Call of Duty approach now, but it was like the Doom approach in the 90s. Um, yeah. So yeah just giving more variety or more creative ways to play a game in that sense there's a lot of options because like adventure games have been around forever so you don't have to play or the games don't have to be just you know run and shoot or run and punch or run and stab um there's a lot of options to build games that just aren't about you know just just purely killing and and being a you know a, a bloodlust machine yeah, I mean, I, I really do like the uh, the Tim Rogers action button reviews of uh, Doom and Tokimeki Memorial, which he put together as a one-two of like, I mean, the, one of the big critiques of Doom that he singles out in his review of Doom is like, what would happen if you were able to actually talk to these monsters? <laughs> <laughs> which is a funny like critique to come out in 1994 or whatever. Right. But like the response to that is, well, if you ha- make a game in which you can talk to those monsters, you make a dating sim called Tokimeki Memorial. <laughs> uh, and he talks about how that game is probably more challenging in many ways than Doom was uh, in order to get the canonical ending. Yeah, you uh, have to, uh, you have to, you know, you have to seduce. You have to be yeah, charming. I, you have to be a charming person. I, I would really recommend actually watching both of those. Um, I think... Tim Rogers can be a little grating to some people, but like he, he makes good content. I don't know. A bit of an aside and, and call back to Alpha Protocol. I, I found an article that said it's not the, the game rights. Uh, Sega still has the game rights. It's apparently licensed the music in the game that uh, mm. the license for which has lapsed. And it's unknown okay. whether or not Sega is even attempting or wants to attempt renegotiating those music rights to permit the sale of the game. Yeah, I would doubt they do because they have no interest in <laughs> maintaining that IP at all. What's that? I hear the the, the winds of the sea. <laughs> Was that the end of your thing? Yeah, that's, that's, oh, pir- okay. it's, a, it's a piracy joke. It's a piracy joke. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, that's oh, true. That's you true. You had me there, though. I was like, what are they saying? What's the wind? <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, I, I do think there's like nothing. Uh, when a game has been delisted, what choice do you have? You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. no like there's no ethical yeah. argument otherwise. <laughs> like, OK, well, if you're not going to pres- uh, preserve it, I guess I will. Did they ever get Alan Wake back up? I think so. I didn't even know it was down. I played it just on Steam a year ago. I, I think uh, okay. I think Alan Wake suffered the same issue where there was probably there was some kind of third party licensed media within the game, and because uh, yeah. the, the Alan Wake was actually mentioned in this article as well as a uh, a comparison. Yeah, because I, I remember Alan Wake did get delisted, and as a result, the publisher put both. Uh, I think there are only two games in that franchise, right? Yeah. They put both of those games on sale for a dollar for like a week before it got delisted. Wow. And like if, if you want to get it now is the time to get it. That's Good cool. luck everybody. Yeah. Uh, whereas once again, Sega doesn't care about it. <laughs> <the protocol>. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> they got Sonic. Yeah. They got Sonic the Hedgehog. They've got Sonic racing transformed. Um, Did you end up getting that when it was Sonic on sale? Sonic 3D right? Blast. 
Sonic 3D. I actually didn't. I Me mean, either. I forgot after I sent it to you. <laughs> although, like, to its credit, Sega does have the Yakuza games, and oh my god. Yeah. Those are solid. Those are very fun. Um, anything else you lads want to talk about? Or we could wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, we, we've been going for a solid hour and a half. Yeah, here. I feel like we got a full, just about a full Jim's philosophy hour in here. Mike, anything you want yeah. to add? You know, I'm, I'm kind of struggling to think of anything to add. Um, there's, there's a lot of good stuff today. Like, and developers, if you make games with morality systems, call up our friend Jim. He knows a lot about them. Yeah, he's the most moral person we know. And, uh, you know, just keep up those music licenses. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows that you got you to gotta keep up your music licenses because copyright is part of the moral system. Yep, sure is. It isn't. <laughs> well, thanks, Jim. This was good. I mean, definitely our uh, most unique one yet. Uh, the, the, the headiest surprise mechanics yet. I think you both did a great job. Uh, and I have made some sick ass doodles over here on my end. Nice. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. Uh, one last thing before I go. Uh, yeah. What year was Jeremy Bentham? Uh, <laughs> oh, shoot. I did not write that down. 1776. That's the guy with the mommy, right? Yeah, uh, the mummy. Yes, not the mommy. The mommy. I mean, he did have a mother, I suppose. He had a mommy. He had a mommy. Wait, you, uh, <laughs> that guy in history who had a mother. He had a mommy. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I've I've drawn a really beautiful picture of what I imagine his mommy looked like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Jim, where can people find you if you want them to find you? If they want me to, f- uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, at Jim Davis underscore online. Uh, you can also navigate to my web space at jimdavis.online. There is no .com. It is just jimdavis.online. That's amazing. Jim Davis is online. Uh, I have not updated that website in many years, but it does exist. I didn't know this existed till right now. Jim Davis is online. I'm looking at it. Yeah. Very good. There's... There's a whole page with pictures of my cat. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I love that. Wow. Definitely go to Jim Davis down online. Oh, you put the hole on here. Love that cat. <laughs> yeah. I remember the hole. You have fallen in a hole. <laughs> I, I, I kind of wish I'd been able to do more with that, but. We still can. Yeah, there is still time. I am still alive. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> Well, thanks, Jim. This was a lot of fun, and we'd love to do this again sometime. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Uh, It would be fun to talk about video games again. Absolutely. Anytime. In the future. future. Okay. Well, uh, you both enjoy the rest of your day. You too. And I'll see you in the next one. Goodbye, friends. Goodbye.